It's always good to be with you. It's always good to make the trip down the mountain on a beautiful day. Good to see Wilson in his natural environment. So uh, great to be with you today. Uh, our text is Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading uh, verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. You probably know the context well. Jesus uh, has just uh, famously heard the confession from Peter that he is the Christ. Uh, he said his famous words about building his church, the gates of hell not prevailing against it. And then we immediately meet the great enemy who leads the gates of hell, Satan, uh, but apparently on the lips and the mind of Peter, that very rock. So would you follow along with me uh, in your reading of God's word, Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated There's an old saying that what goes up must come down. You know that saying, you've probably used it or heard it before. Now we can understand it as a literal saying. What literally goes up must come down. Uh, supposedly Isaac Newton was the first one to say that under his famous apple tree. don't know if that's actually true or not, but it can be referred to gravity, right? A ball, a rock, an apple goes up and it has to come down. We use it not only literally, we use it figuratively, don't we? We think of uh, our favorite sports team, all right? They win some championships, and then you know what goes up must come down. Any Clemson fans uh, in the room? You know what goes up comes down. Maybe we think of it with our stock prices. Maybe we think of it with the housing market. It goes up and it comes down. Maybe it's our favorite politician. Maybe it's our kids' middle school popularity, right? What goes up uh, must eventually come down. When we turn to this section in the book of Matthew, what we see going on in the life and ministry of Jesus is both literally and figuratively going up. If you look back at verse 13, you see that Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Geographically, this far northern place that Jesus goes in his ministry. In Matthew's gospel, so far he's going, he's sort of spreading out around and across the Sea of Galilee, up on the coast, right? He's now far north. I think it's as far north as he goes in his earthly ministry. And it's from Caesarea Philippi. He turns and he begins literally to go down towards Jerusalem. That figurative, that literal going up and down is paralleled with a deeper figurative meaning. He goes up to this point in a growing sense of understanding who Jesus is. If you read through Matthew, we've been preaching through it for over a year at our church. Uh, he is revealing himself more and more who he is. He is the, the rabbi. He is the teacher. He is the Lord. 
He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And here, for the first time, at this far northern point, as this great confession comes on the lips of Peter, he is the Christ. It's almost the culmination of 16 chapters, the culmination of the disciples' understanding of Jesus, this high point. And so we as readers and they as followers are somewhat surprised that now from this pinnacle, he begins not only to travel down to Jerusalem, but he begins to tell them what it really means that he is the Christ. What it really means for him to fulfill the office of the anointed one. In these few verses, I want to show you that Jesus went all the way down to the grave, that he might bring us up all the way to glory, all the way down to bring us all the way up. Look at this path. I want to show it to you in a couple different headings. We're going to see uh, who is who is working in these verses. I want to show you the role of the Father. God the Father is playing here. I want to show you the role of the Son. And then we're going to see in the final verse the role of the enemy working in the mindsets of Peter. First chapter, I'm sorry, verse 21, just that first part. I want to show you the Father purposes. What are the purposes of the Father? Jesus, Matthew tells us from that time, began to show his disciples what he must do. Interesting, he says show and not tell. He's telling, but it's also something about the way he's interacting with them and his journey. He's, he's showing them what he, he must do. What he must do is suffer. That's where the text takes us. But why does Jesus believe that he has to suffer? What is it about the messianic call that Jesus, from the confession of Christ, now begins to fill that word with the meaning of suffering and dying. Well, Scripture tells us, of course, in, in some famous prophecies of one to come who will suffer. Most famous we read of it in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, a text that the original hearers and the Jews of the day probably weren't aligning with the prophecy of the Messiah. They knew there was going to be a suffering servant, the different views of who that would be or, or what group that would be. And then there's the Messiah on the other hand. And while they probably thought of them as two different people who would fulfill them, Jesus knows of all the prophecies. He knows all that he has come to fill. He knows all that he has come to do. He knows that he's come not just to take the predictions of the good stuff, right? The king who will rule and reign. He knows he's come to fill the, the, the prophecies and the types and the shadows of the hard stuff too. But I think we can reach back in the mind of Christ beyond just the the, the prophecies of the Old Testament all the way back to the covenant of redemption, the plan amongst the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to save a sinful people by the sacrifice of the Son for the glory uh, of the Father. Jesus says, must. There's something he must do. This is the, a burden of almost, we could call it divine necessity. This isn't like telling your kids, you must eat your veggies if you want to have dessert, right? Something so much different than that. It's his, his understanding, his conception of what is his mission? What has he come to do? He's not come to sort of wander around Galilee and give some tips and some teaching and maybe heal a few people. No, there's something that he is burdened. There is a, a mission upon his shoulders that he knows he must fulfill. You know, in John's gospel, he uses that phrase all over and over again that he is sent. He is sent from the Father. Here is this uh, idea of his, his calling, his mission, that divine necessity that he must fulfill. We read of this in the book of Acts, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he preaches Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I want you to see that as Jesus reaches this high point and begins to go down, this isn't a receding of the tide that sort of shows his defeat. This isn't he tried his best, uh, and now I guess he's going to go and suffer and die because nothing worked out. No, in fact, this is the heart of the mission itself. As he turns to fulfill the very plan of God, that God, from the beginning of the foundation of the world, purposes to save. But we see in that must, in the mind of Christ, is a purpose of God through him to save a people for himself. That he must do it to accomplish the Father's purposes. If the Father purposes here, how does the Son respond to this? I want to show you secondly in the text, the Son perseveres. Verses 21, just the second half of the verse, 21b. It's easy for me to get some instructions that I don't want to do and not do them, right? <laughs> I tell my kids they must eat their veggies to have dessert, and what do they do? They just don't eat their veggies, right? <laughs> they just don't have dessert then. The son perseveres here in a way that none of us would. Look at these four steps that Matthew takes us through. He must, number one, go, number two, suffer, number three, be killed, uh, number four, be raised. That first step, he must go to Jerusalem. Here's the turn. Right? I've, I've, I've been trying to emphasize this in months of preaching, but every time Jesus in Matthew's gospel faces opposition, he sort of steps back from it. He doesn't retreat. He's not cowardly. He's not afraid. But it's not his time yet. And so he withdraws. He, he leaves the crowds. He goes to a private place. He goes to a quiet place. But here, everything changes. Here, it's time to go to Jerusalem. You know what it's like when you have uh, a hard conversation you have to have with someone and you don't want to have it. <laughs> and you see them and you think, oh, not today, right? Uh, today's not the right day. Maybe tomorrow, right? Uh, and it keeps going on for weeks and months. Or maybe there's somebody that you know and love and you want them to have that hard conversation and they keep putting it off. We saw in verse 20 of this passage that Jesus charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. How must that have set upon them, their ears? Wait a second. Jesus. Don't you know who you are? Everybody wants to hear this. And now we can't tell anyone. Jesus knows the right time to have this conflict. Because while most of the Jewish nation would celebrate a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem, this is not that type of pilgrimage for Jesus, is it? This is not going for the celebratory feasts. In the mind of Christ is Jerusalem described as the city that kills the prophets. Luke tells us that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah uses the prophetic imagery of his face was like flint. There's in this, this change a determination. He knows what lies ahead of him. Peter apparently has no idea. But Jesus knows. And from this moment forward, his face is set. And it will not be turned aside. He will not be turned away. He is going to Jerusalem. What will happen in Jerusalem? The second word. And the plan, suffer. Again, I think we can understand Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. 
who will suffer at the hands of elders, chief priests, and scribes. You put those together, that's the Sanhedrin. The summary here is just that he will suffer many things. If we go fast forward in Matthew's gospel, this is the first of three times in a concise period that Jesus will foretell his death and resurrection. And he sort of gets more and more details as we go. And one of the details we get is that the many things are defined as mocking and flogging, verbal assaults and physical assaults. And Jesus knows that both of those lay ahead for him. He knows the misery that lays ahead of him. He knows the the many things that maybe in the disciples' minds they could minimize, they could downplay. I know it's just going to be a harsh word here. Someone's just going to give you a cold shoulder there. Jesus knows all that he goes to face, culminating in our third step in the plan, and that is that he will be killed. Again, no specifics here. We have to go to our third foretelling. A couple chapters later, we learn the method of his murder, and that is crucifixion. You notice how the verb form changes from active to passive, be killed. That Jesus places himself, the king of the universe, the Messiah that's just been confessed, places himself, as it were, at the mercy of wicked and sinful men, that they might put him to death. The hands of these lawless men would commit this greatest of sins against the living Savior. And he knows, again, that's where he's going. The downward trip does not end in Jerusalem. It keeps going down, down into the pit where he is imprisoned and where he suffers, down into the tomb itself. But you know how it ends. The fourth step in this plan is not another step down. It's the final turn to come back up. The end of verse 21, on the third day, he will be raised. He will be made alive again. The third day, we've seen Jesus in Matthew's gospel twice already speak of the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the great fish, just as Jesus will continue three days in the belly of the earth. But you note again the the form of the verb, he will be raised. Well, lawless men can kill him. Lawless men cannot raise him. So far, he is actually in some accounts, he has healed people. And he is, we have been told almost nonchalantly, he's raised people from the dead. But now it's not Jesus doing the raising, is it? He is entrusting himself to another that has the power to raise him from the dead. You see, as Christ approached his very death, he did so with faith. Faith that his God, his father, would fulfill the promise to raise him from the grave. It's that same faith that every Christian faces our final day with. That God alone raises us from the tomb. You see, Peter and the disciples are right to confess that Jesus is the Christ. But he's a different kind of Christ. He is a different type of Messiah than the one that they were expecting. And we see here a faith and a determination that would have not marked any of the other anointed ones. He would go to the very end. He would set his face and he would not be turned astray to the very end. Think for a moment on the mind of Christ. That we we speak the gospel in simple and glorious terms. 
Jesus, he died, he was raised. Believe on him and you will be saved. It's the simple beauty of the gospel that we love. But sometimes it can be so simple, we state it like it's a math equation, right? Just faith in Jesus equals salvation. And we forget that, yeah, but that word Jesus means a whole lot, right? (laughs) It's not just a number in a math equation. For months, he was determined to go all the way to Jerusalem. The commitment of your Savior to endure unto the very end. As the priest would bear the names of the tribes of Israel on his breastplate, so does our high priest bear the names of his children as he suffers, as he dies in Jerusalem. What comfort that is to us, isn't it? What comfort that must be to us, because when we, when we struggle with our faith, when we wonder uh, if we are really good enough, is our faith strong enough, have we borne enough fruit, and all of those wrong questions that you know that people ask us, and we ask ourselves in our honest moments. It's not us that endures to the end, is it? It's not us that goes to Jerusalem. It's not us that bears all of the suffering and, uh, and the death at the hands of lawless men, receiving the full wrath of God. But it's Christ who endures. It is Christ who goes all the way to the end, bearing our very names. We have hope because the Son perseveres in fulfilling the purposes of the Father. We know his path is going to be full of suffering. We know there are going to be trials. We know there are going to be challenges. We know there's going to be pain and suffering. And so we are surprised when we read the very first challenge that he faces. It comes from the most unlikely of places. I want you to see thirdly, Uh, in our passage, that the enemy provokes. The enemy provokes. There's a a fascinating parallelism that goes on here. The previous passage, uh, we have seen that Peter essentially names Jesus, you are the Christ. And in return, Jesus names Peter, you are the rock. Well, they exchange naming in those verses. Here they exchange rebukes, right? Peter first rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. The audacity here. I mean, we're used to it, but just place yourself uh, in the crowd of disciples. The audacity of Peter to turn and rebuke Jesus, to take him aside like a child, right? And begin to rebuke him. That could mean that he has lots of rebukes in store, or maybe he didn't even get the words out before Jesus Uh, cut him off, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Uh, This shall never happen to you. I think maybe this is like, uh, you know, a friend gets a a bad diagnosis from the doctor, and you want to say something comforting to them. And you say, well, it's not not really that bad, or nothing bad is going to happen to you, or they get fired, and it's all going to work out just fine. Maybe that's Peter sort of as a friend, He doesn't want his friend, Jesus, to suffer. He has this personal reason to say this. And maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking, we just confessed you're the Christ, the king, and the king has a kingdom, and that that kingdom is brought in this world, in the church, and we're part of the church, and I'm the rock upon which the church is built. And so if you're going to die, what's going to happen to me, Jesus? But I I think, Peter, it's more than just a personal reason. I think it's a theological reason. I think Peter's trying to correct Jesus' theology. He's telling him, hey, man, you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die, right? And if they do die, it means they're not really the Messiah. You're supposed to be the, you're supposed to be 
David's son, right? You're great, David's greater Lord. You're the anointed one. You were come to ushering in the kingdom. Jesus, messiahs don't die. <laughs> I've just confessed you're the Christ. This can't, this won't happen to you. I think J.C. Ryle says it here very simply. He applies this verse. He says, don't pastor Jesus, but follow him. <laughs> don't pastor Jesus. Don't try to tell Jesus what he really means. Don't read the words of Christ and say, it's not really what you meant to say, right, Jesus? Let me me tell you what the Old Testament really says about the one that is to come. Peter's, I'm sorry, Jesus is even harsher (laughs) to Peter. He turns, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. Jesus invokes the devil here in rebuking Peter. Why does he do that? What is it about Satan and his ways, particularly that Jesus would identify in this moment to issue such a harsh rebuke? How does Satan work? Well, Satan deceives. He is the deceiver. Think with me for a moment at the, the greatest hits, right? And Satan's, Satan's temptations. Go back to the Garden of Eden. And he tempts Eve to eat the fruit with that assurance that she won't surely die. And the the picture that the devil is painting for Eve is that, yes, sure, you're in this great, beautiful garden. You have everything you want, but it would be better if you could just have that over there. Or to put it another way, if we just remove this restriction from God from you, your life would be better, right? What's he doing in the garden? He's offering in his his, his, his deceived reality, he's offering the blessing without the burden of the law. That's what he's trying to do. Fast forward to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, chapter four, and he takes Jesus out in his famous desert temptation. And in that third temptation, he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. What is it about this this temptation? How is he trying to deceive our Lord? It's because he's offering him the crown without the cross. All the kingdoms of the world will be the risen Lord Jesus is, and yet Satan offers it to him without the bitter cross. So what's going on here? Through Peter, through a wrong mindset of Peter, the enemy is trying to turn Jesus away from the path of suffering and turn him away from the path of the cross. He deceives by offering a crown without a cross. Jesus, of course, sees right through it. Look what he calls Peter. He says, you are a hindrance to me. Hindrance, literally a stumbling block, or we might say a stone of stumbling. Same guy is just called the rock upon which the church is founded, and now he's the stone threatening to trip up the Messiah on his way to the cross. Do you see that the the barrier sort of on the path of Jesus that Peter's sort of putting up is not something more difficult for him. Peter's trying to make it easier for him. He's trying to take away all the hard stuff. He's trying to remove all of the suffering. The hindrance is actually the easier path. But Jesus knows that he must suffer. Fulfill the plan of God. And he puts his finger on the problem. 
with Peter. He says in the final part of verse 23, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's problem is his mindset, right? Where is his vision? What's he thinking on? On what is his mind set? And we, we sometimes read these verses out of context and sort of apply them just to all of Christian discipleship. Sort of, yeah, set your mind on the things of God. Read your Bible, pray, go to church. I mean, those are all good things, right? You should be doing those. What is, what is Jesus particularly referring to here? It would seem to be that the things of man for Peter are the Messiah without the suffering. Or as Martin Luther draws a line for us, a theology of glory as, o- as opposed to a theology of the cross. That the things of man are bringing in all of the riches, all of the glory, all of the power of the kingdom right here, right now, and banish any of the sorrow, the suffering, take away any of the pick up your cross and follow me talk. No, kingdom, Jesus, son of David, anointed one, here, now, let's go. That's the savior I want to follow, Peter seems to be saying. And Jesus tells us, no, the mind of God, the heart of God, the plan of God is a suffering servant. Is a Messiah first with a crown of thorns before the crown of glory. To set your mind on the things of God here is to set your mind on the cross of Christ. This is where he takes us in the next few verses. To take up your cross and follow me. Peter seems to be believing and teaching that if we're suffering, we're probably on the wrong path. If we're enduring a life under the shadow of the cross, then probably we're following the wrong path. The blessed life is not the hard life, seems to be in the mindset of Peter. The blessed life is the easy life. He's taking the promise of Jesus that he's just given that the church will never perish. He's forgetting that the church indeed will be attacked. She will suffer following after Christ. The father purposes a plan to save his people through sending his son. The son perseveres to go down, to go to his suffering, and to go to the grave. But along the way, the enemy provokes. The enemy attacks. The enemy sows seeds of doubt, discouragement in the hearts and minds, even of the followers of Christ. Let me close with a couple applications for us, simply from the text. Number one, set your mind on the things of God. That doesn't, that's not a general application to meditate on the word, although that is certainly good and helpful. Certainly something we should be doing, but look particularly how Jesus presses this home in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it mean to set our mind on the things of God is to follow Christ on his path of suffering. It is seeing the determination of our savior who set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and to follow him. Stumbling and struggling, but following him in faith. And as we do this as children of God, as we do this as sons and daughters and husbands and wives, we particularly do this for those of you who are in gospel ministry. We not only set our mind on the things of God, we set our ministry on the things of God. 
you going into ministry, it's going to be a wonderful moment when you're ordained and installed into a new church. And you're going to be tempted to think, yeah, I'm here. Let's go. Right. <laughs> you may not say that, but you might think that there's a lot of excitement the first day, the first couple of months, the first couple of years of a new pastor. We might wrongly buy into a theology of glory. We get our, our theology right. We get our ministry right. We get our means of grace right. We get our philosophy of ministry right. And boom, the kingdom will come at my church, in my place, according to my schedule. In fact, we need to be men committed to a theology of the cross, not only following him, bearing our cross, but leading our flocks to do the same. To be leading our people on the pilgrim path of suffering, of teaching them that they can gain the whole world, but at the price of their very own soul. We follow Christ, who has gone before us on his path of suffering. Because if the truth of, of gravity, that what goes up must come down, the truth of the gospel is what goes down must come up, isn't it? <laughs> he goes all the way down that he might be raised up by his father, that he burst the gates of hell. They cannot stand against the tomb of our Lord. They cannot stand against the church and cannot stand against the people of God. Brothers and sisters, follow Christ on the path all the way down, for he indeed in his grace will bring you all the way up. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are humbled this morning to consider what you knew that you were going to face in your love for your father and your love for your people. We are humbled to know that you would go all the way, that you would, through long nights, press on unto Jerusalem, press on knowing what was before you, to endure that long night in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading that this cup might be taken from you, and yet how you persevered till the end, how you endured the cross, and you despised the shame, and now you are seated at the right hand of our God on high. We praise you, O Lord, that you entrusted yourself to your Father to so be raised up. And might we, as those who have had that blood sh shed for us, as those who rest under the shadow of the cross, might by your grace and your mercy, our minds today not be set on the things of men, but be set on the things of God. Would the cross and all of its offense be nothing but beauty to us? Would, be re, would we be reminded, both as your children and as ministers of your gospel, that we are called to take up our cross as well and follow you, knowing that that suffering and that sorrowing cannot compare, can never compare to that which you endured for us. We have but a taste, but a prick. And Lord, we endure it joyfully, trusting in you, our Savior. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all of these things. Amen.